The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles tonight, if you would, please, and open them to uh, the epistle to the Colossians, chapter 1. And this evening we continue our study in the doctrine of the church. And for several weeks we have been looking at this, the various works of the church and the different areas in which the church ministers. I think this is a very important subject. I was having a discussion with Brother Lino in my office just before services began. And there are just so many churches and so many places that you can go where there aren't any doctrines that are really taught. I mean, it's just mostly down here on this level. And that's good. You need some of that. You've got to have some place to start out. There has to be a first step that you take. But the Word of God uh, teaches that we need to move on to other things. I mean, we need to keep climbing that ladder and learning a lot more about what the Bible has to say. And as we increase our knowledge in these many different areas, that in turn increases our faith and gives us a greater appreciation for what God has done. So we're looking at uh, works of the church, different things that the church does, and we know that the one primary external work of the church is this, that is evangelism. The Word of God tells us that we are to reach people for Christ. We have been given a commission that we are to go into the world and preach the gospel. As Buell Kazee said, he said the church is foremost a preaching institution, and he said when the preaching is all done, then the mission of the church is done. So we recognize that as the greatest external ministry of the church, but before we can do that, there has to be a lot of internal work that goes on. There's a whole lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes before we actually come to the place where we can be effective in our evangelism. Uh, There has to be a change in the heart of God's people. There has to be a sanctifying work that's going on all of the time in our hearts, and if we don't have that, we won't be interested in evangelism. Now, if you're wondering whether you are sanctified in all the areas of your life, then you might do well to look at this one particular area. What are you doing in the area of evangelism? And unless you're a sanctified Christian, evangelism won't be something that you really want to do. So I think that all of us would agree. I don't think there's a person in here tonight who wouldn't agree with this statement that there needs to be a lot more of this sanctifying work that's going on among the members of Brian Baptist Church with with all of us. I think all of us can say that. Well, we've also learned that the chief ministry of the church is the exaltation of Christ. I mentioned this morning that we were created for worship. And a little bit later on, we'll have a a lesson or two on worship. But we've been created to give God glory. The church is the place where God is given glory. And everything that we do in the church flows upward into that main purpose. Well, how is the church to glorify God? Well, we first of all have to realize that righteousness glorifies God. That holiness glorifies God. And so we can never hope to give God, to give Jesus Christ the glory that he deserves as long as sin is ruling our lives instead of him. So the sin has to be removed. The church has to be kept pure and uh, holy in in the eyes of God. And this is what Paul is 
reiterating here in our text verses in Colossians chapter 1. Now, if you look at this, in Colossians 1 verse 21, he said, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, he hath, now, hath he now reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, listen, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, have been made a minister. Now, you can see there from what the apostle writes that we have been changed from the state that we were in, that's a state of alienation to God, that we've been changed from the natural course of our lives, which was our wicked works. And now he says... You have reversed that course. Now you are reconciled by the death of Christ in order that you would be holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. That is our purity. And when we backslide from the purity, that's when we get moved away from the hope of the gospel. So this is really, this particular point, this is where we hit the stride of this subject that we've been talking about. And you recognize it very well by now that we're talking on the subject of church discipline. Discipline means training. It's what helps us to become more like Christ. It's what makes us holy and it enables us to have the character of Christ in order that the work of the church can be more effective. Now, I'm sure at this point that there's some of you that are thinking, we are just sick of hearing of church discipline. We're sick of hearing about church discipline. And we've been through it a lot over these past couple of months. Uh, well, rest easy, because this is the last message that you're going to hear on church discipline for a while. But let me warn you about something. Even though you won't hear those terms, church discipline, yet almost every sermon that I preach is a sermon about church discipline. And that's because all, almost all of the sermons fall under one of those categories of, of discipline, and most particularly the sermons fall under the first part, and that is formative discipline. That's the discipline where we're taught to be like Christ, to obey God. And so when you obey God and you live by his commandments, that's when the purity of the church is maintained. Now, in the previous messages, I've spoken about those departments of discipline. There are at least two of them, and sometimes we identify three. There's formative discipline. That's the teaching aspect. That's learning uh, to obey God and being formed into the image of Christ. And then there is corrective discipline. That's what becomes necessary when you sin. Formative discipline is the positive side, and negative, or corrective discipline, rather, is the negative side. And there is a great deal of corrective discipline that goes on in the church that you actually don't know about. That many members of the church don't even realize that it's going on. The corrective discipline is happening, but it happens this way. And that is people hear the messages, they recognize the sin that they have committed, and they go ahead and do something about it. They get corrected by what they hear. But unfortunately... Uh, sometimes things go a little bit further than that and people aren't corrected by what they hear. And so that requires a visit from a member or from one of the deacons or a visit from the pastor. And then according to Matthew chapter 18 and the steps that are given there, the problem is taken care of. You see, here's what happens. When you become a church member, you agree that you will submit yourself to the discipline of the church. And that you won't look at that as an invasive procedure like we're trying to tread on your life and tell you what to do. 
but rather it's the very best thing that can possibly happen to you is that when other members of the church, when the pastor, when the deacon see you go off into sin, that they stop you and they tell you and they try to correct you in order that you get back into the right path where you have the blessings of God again. That's the very best thing that can happen to you in a church. Don't, you would never want people to completely ignore you when you go off the right path. You want people to see that, and you should want people to come and try to help you when they're in that situation. Now, the purpose of corrective discipline, then, is to keep the church pure. It's to keep it free from sin. Uh, what Paul called in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, this is getting leaven out of the lump. But sometimes, regrettably, corrective discipline has to take a more severe turn. Sometimes people don't respond as they should, and they don't repent of their sins, and when that happens, we can't let a person's sin drag the church down. And so we have to take action, and we take the third type of discipline. We exercise the third type, and that is excisive discipline. And that's where we remove a person from the membership of the church. That's when we have to cut off fellowship from that person. And sometimes that excisive discipline is called excommunication. Some people call it that. Some call it exclusion from the church. But it is a necessary step when there's nothing else that can be done. When a person just will not repent of their sin, they won't walk the way that they're supposed to walk, when they refuse correction from the church, then they have to be removed. So those are three areas of discipline that we covered. Formative discipline, corrective discipline, and excisive discipline. Now this evening, I want to take up the third part of our outline. And the third part is extremes for exclusion. Now, what do we mean by this? Extremes for exclusion. Well, we go back to the Matthew 18 passage, and that's the one that kind of kicked all of this off and got us all started on, on learning about discipline. We notice in that Matthew 18 passage that there aren't any specific sins that are mentioned there. They're just general things. They can be things that are wide-ranging, uh, anything that hurts the fellowship of the church, anything that causes strife within the membership. We go through a process of correction, and those sins uh, are, are, are things that are outlined, or the way that we go about doing that is outlined in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. And there are some sins for which we would not remove a person from the church. For example, uh, if you don't read your Bible every day, we're not going to come to you and say, you know, you should be reading your Bible every day, and you should. I mean, it's a good thing. It's sin if you don't spend time in the Word of God and learn what's in there. I mean, that's good for you. It's sin if you don't do it. But we're not going to come to you and say, well, how many chapters did you read this week? And if you didn't read this many chapters, we're going to kick you out of the church. We're not going to kick anybody out of the church for not reading their Bible. You should do it. Sin if you don't. But that's not something we kick people out of the church for. We're not going to kick you out of the church if you don't share your faith with other people. That's also sin, and that's also something that you should do. But we're not going to come to you and say, well, how many visits did you make this week? How many people have you talked to about the Lord? How many times have you shared your faith? And you need to sign something here, you need to fill it all out, turn it in to us, so we know that you're in good standing with the church. Well, we don't go to people. We don't say, well, you have to do this. You have to witness in order to be a member of the church. You should do it again. You should do it. That's, that's commanded in the Scriptures. And there are some churches that come close to that. I mean, they might not just say, well, well, if you don't do this, you can't be a member of the church. But I'll tell you something, they definitely do have a caste system in the church. Does everybody know what I mean by that? 
They have a caste system. And if you don't do what they say in that area, then you're a social or maybe a, a spiritual pariah if you don't do that. Well, we're not going to come check you up on that. I think you ought to do it, but we're not going to say you can't be a member of the church. Now, there's some things that you can do when we say you can't be a part of the leadership of the church. We can say that, but we don't uh, exclude people for things like not reading your Bible and for not um, witnessing to people. Now, likewise, we'll not exclude people over preferential issues. You know, there are some people who think that their preferences rise to the level of doctrine and their preferences are sufficient enough to condemn people to the fires of hell. Now, if things are not clearly spelled out in the Scripture, whether we do them or whether we don't, we don't turn those preferences into condemnation. And again, in some ministries that happens, it can be a music style, it can be certain composers, it can be using screens, it can be having a PowerPoint presentation. Did you know that there are some churches that think that Berean Baptist is right on the brink of hell because we have a screen and because we have PowerPoint and we use that to to help with our messages. But we're not going to take those preferential issues, things that are not spelled out in the Word of God, and turn them into something that we would kick people out of the church over. Now, here's an interesting thing. Uh, The new directory for Baptist churches, and I have another quote from them in just a minute, but they have an interesting perspective on this. This is what Edward Hiscox wrote. He said, There are in most churches certain persons with so keen a scent for defects in others and with such a stern, almost relentless sense of judicial orthodoxy in matters in order that they are always finding somebody who deserves to be disciplined. These severe censors of their brethren never seem so much at home as when actively engaged, bringing to justice some offender. Then they appear at the best. Now, they're probably honest and conscientious and mean only to guard the purity and the good name of the church. And, folks, I think that's a very generous statement right there. Uh, They're probably honest and conscientious and mean only to guard the purity and good name of the church, but they need watching and moderating. And to that we would say amen. There's none of us that's supposed to be the kind of person that's always following somebody around. What are you doing wrong? I'm going to catch you doing something wrong, and I'm going to turn you in if I catch you doing something wrong. None of us are to be like that. Now, what the New Testament does, it gives us latitude for certain preferences. As long as those things don't become stumbling blocks to the church, if they don't tear the body of Christ down, then we have Christian liberty in many things. Now, the Apostle Paul talks about Christian liberty in Romans 15, 1 through 7. And remember that there are other places where Paul preached about eating meat that was sacrificed to idols, whether it was right or whether it was wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And that was an issue for him. And that's because there were so many pagans in all of these cities where he preached and began churches. And the acceptance of that practice, whether it was right to, right to eat or not to eat, meat that was offered to an idol depended upon the strength of the Christians that were in that area. Now, you remember the Apostle Paul said, whether you eat the meat or whether you don't eat the meat, it doesn't matter because meat that's sacrificed to an idol doesn't mean anything. And the reason it doesn't, because the idol doesn't mean anything. He said, the idol's just a dumb thing. You don't worry about that. But there were some Christians in the areas where he taught and preached to people that they were offended by that. And that that hurt their Christianity. They didn't really understand all of that. And so Paul said, it's better not to do it then. Don't offend a weaker brother. 
So that might be a case where a preferential issue, the apostle might lift that and he might say, well, you really shouldn't do that because it does hurt another Christian. And, and if we come to the place where we wound the conscience of a weaker Christian, then we want to stay away from certain things, even if uh, there is no scripture that says you absolutely can't do it. So we have to regard that. But without thinking about those things, there are some sins that take place in the church that rise to a level above the others, or you might say it sinks beneath the level of many others. And these are sins that don't call for us to take multiple steps in order to discipline people. These are what I call the extremes that require exclusion. So there are some sins that the Bible says that when a person commits these and they, and, and they do this, you don't have to have a trial in the church. You don't have to get a bunch of people together and decide whether it's right or wrong. This is a wrong thing and it cannot be tolerated in the church. And if people persist in that, you must remove them from the church. Now, we're going to talk about some of those things tonight. And these aren't in, in, in any particular order, but I think you will understand why I put this one at the top of the list. The first one is heresy. When a person rejects any fundamental of faith, then we cannot tolerate that person in the assembly of God's people. And the reason that we can't is because false doctrine is subversive to the gospel of Christ. What does the Word of God say about the church? It says it's the pillar and the ground of the truth. And it's the truth that exalts Jesus Christ. And so if there's anything that attacks the foundation of truth, we can't stand for it. We have to move immediately on that. And so there are certain doctrines that we hold to that are indispensable to our faith. We can't compromise in the least degree. We can't allow any latitude on these. What kind of doctrines would they be? Well, they would be doctrines like the deity of Jesus Christ. You can't be a Christian unless you believe that Jesus Christ is God. Isn't that fundamental to our faith? I mean, that's one of the very root things. You have to believe that Jesus is co-equal with the Father, that he's co-existent with the Father, he's co-substantial with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And then as we look at Jesus, we can't regard him as simply a moral example. He was not born of a human father, And so that shows you that such doctrines as the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is an essential doctrine. We must have that. We can't have a church without that. That's an essential to the faith. The Trinity, that's a doctrine we must believe. We can't do without that. A person must also believe in the blood atonement of Christ. And you must believe in the penal substitution of Christ. Do you understand what that means? Penal substitution? It means that Christ died to take the penalty of our sins. That's an essential, isn't it? Did you know this, though, that there was a man who lived in the 19th century that many of, of the Baptists looked to and say, you know, that person was a great soul winner. He's a great model for us. Let's, let's really just, uh, we, we need to look at his example and see what he did, and we need to be that kind of a soul winner. You know who that man was? His name was Charles Finney. But you know two things that Charles Finney did not believe? Penal substitution or in the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. How could you call that person even a Christian? Now today, and I've told you about this before, in the northeastern part of our country where Charles Finney ministered over 100 years ago, 150 years ago, they now call that the burned-over zone. You remember me telling you about that? The burned-over zone. And they meant there were so many revivals there and so many false professions of faith 
that when you go in there to preach the gospel today, people are just completely turned off of it. I mean, even 150 years later, it's hard to witness in that area of the country and bring people to faith in Jesus Christ because of this experience that happened about 150 years ago. I mean, it's just a remarkable thing. So you can't, you can't fudge on these kind of doctrines. These are essentials to the faith. Another one would be the resurrection of Christ. That's a fundamental doctrine, isn't it? Doesn't the Scripture say that Christ was raised for our justification? And if Christ was not raised, what does it mean? You can't be saved. There is no justification without that. So what do we do? We evaluate people based upon the doctrines that they believe. And we have to check that out. We can't have people that are teaching heresy, that believe heresies. Now, there are other things that we teach that are not critical to salvation, but they can be critical to the membership of the church. For instance, we have to have an agreement on baptism. We can't have some people in the church that have been baptized as infants and say that's good and then have some that, oh, well, any infant baptism is not believer's baptism. So you can't have people in the church that's never ha- that have never had believer's baptism. Then I think there are others that are important. Belief in a literal hell, that's important to our faith, isn't it? We couldn't have anybody as a member of the church who didn't believe in a literal hell. A belief in the depravity of man, we can't have people that don't believe in human depravity. Now, here's the thing, though. There can be people in the church that are in various stages of their training. I mean, all of you may not understand these doctrines that I've just told you. And so you you hear us preach about those, and you don't understand them all up front. But what you would never do is after you have received the instruction of the Word, you wouldn't sit back and say, well, I don't believe that. I mean, I've heard you teach it. I've seen what the Bible has to say about it, but I don't believe that. We can't have people like that. You have to have people that are willing to be instructed in God's Word. And when they hear these truths or these doctrines, they receive those and they believe them. And if they don't, if they're speaking against things that are taught from the pulpit, that becomes damaging to our fellowship. This is what Paul said in Titus 3.10, a man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition reject. We also have this warning in Galatians 1, 8, and 9. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Now there Paul is talking about the error of justification. That is a key Bible doctrine. So if somebody says, well, you're justified by your works, that's how you get to heaven, by your works, rather than by faith alone in Jesus Christ, that person is a heretic. He can't be a member of the church. Now, I mentioned the deity of Christ just a moment ago. Listen to what John says in 2 John verses 10 and 11. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, for he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Now, these are commands that we find in Scripture to reject people that teach heresy. Now, if you look at John's letter, remember, we studied this some months ago, and there the Apostle John in that in 1 John gives us all these items, these things that are essential that we try a person's faith by. And so, what we don't do is we don't fill up the church with unregenerate people, especially people that would be vocally subversive to the teaching of the church. 
Well, there's several more of those that we could look at, but they, they generally fall into the category of false views of salvation or some kind of an error on the deity of Christ. I mean, that's almost invariably they're going to fall into those categories. Well, what's another extreme? Well, here's another one. The other extreme or next one concerns moral offenses, moral offenses. Now, we've already talked uh, uh, quite a bit about this. Uh, the classic example, of course, was 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And in that example, we, there was sexual misconduct. I mean, sexual sin such as adultery, that's a cause to remove someone from the church. Now, when you see adultery in the Bible, that really covers a wide range of sexual sins. Now, sometimes, uh, the way we commonly use the word today, adultery refers to relations between uh, people that are married but when you go back into the Old Testament and you see it in lists such as in the Ten Commandments, and that is commandment what? Adultery? Seven. Why didn't the rest of you all say seven? We're supposed to know seven, right. That's number seven. We learned that, didn't we? That's number seven. But when you see that in the Scriptures, it actually covers a wide range of sexual sins. So it talks about homosexuality, uh, premarital sex. It would deal with pornography, just all different types of sexual sins. So that's included. So if people are guilty of those kinds of things, then they couldn't be a member of the Lord's church. I mean, we have to protect the chastity of the Lord's body. And so sexual sins would be a cause for someone to be uh, removed from the church. Well, we get that one, don't we? I mean, we don't, we're not going to have too much of an argument about that, that we can't have people in the church that do those kinds of things. But did you know, you know, we looked at this, and maybe we were looking particularly at adultery, but did you know in that scripture that we were dealing with in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that Paul also includes several other things with that list? And he says that you're not to have company with the person who commits these sins. Now look at 1 Corinthians 5.11, or it'll be on the screen for you. It says, but now I've written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. Now, we covered fornication. We're, we're all agreement there. What about covetousness? Do we put people out of the church for being covetous? Well, in that passage... Paul is actually referring to someone who's dishonest in business, someone dishonest in financial affairs. Now, it seems almost just every year that you hear somebody that's been caught embezzling funds from their company, and you hear it a lot about people embezzling money from the church, from a church. Uh, a year or so ago, a couple of years, I don't remember how long ago it was now, but you may remember there was um, uh, the Spiritual Life Center up on Occidental Road, that there was a lady in that church, a secretary, that embezzled hundreds of thousands of dollars from that church. Now, I just wish we had hundreds of thousands of dollars that could be embezzled. I'd be just happy with that. But, uh, but that's what she did. She embezzled this money from the church. Now, I actually think she did a good thing, folks. I think it was a good thing because they used that money to spread lies, and she stole it from them. That's fine with me. She can have as much as she wants. But, but financial difficulties, embezzling money from the church, I mean, that's, that's one of the things we look out for. That's why we have checks and balances in our church on the way that we handle money. Brother John is our treasurer. A few months ago, I don't know how long ago it was, he bought a new car, so we checked the bank balance. Was it, where did that money come from? 
And, you know, he went to Greece some time ago. Maybe we don't check close enough, but we do that. We have all the checks and balances to make sure that nobody can steal the Lord's money. So that's a thing that, the, that Paul mentions here. He talks about covetousness. Then idolatry is on this list. Now, what Paul had in mind here were worshipers of actual idols. I mean, the images like, you know, he was common in his time. So that would knock out Roman Catholicism, wouldn't it? But what if Paul was talking about the mental idolatry? If he was talking about that, we wouldn't have anybody left in the church because we're all guilty at some time or another of having our idols that we put in front of Christ, don't we? I mean, we do all the time. I mean, there's none of us that loves Christ with all of our heart, all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our might. There's none of us that does that like we really should. We all have some kind of an idol that we're holding on to. We try to get rid of those, but if we got rid of people in the church that were guilty of mental idolatry, we wouldn't have anybody left. But this is one of the things that Paul mentions. He talks about idolatry. Next there, he talks about a railer. That's what we would call maybe a reviler. Or that's somebody who constantly uses abusive language. Somebody that's always abusing someone else with their speech. Paul says, you can't have somebody like that in the church. Get rid of those. Here he mentions drunkards. Think about that one. Could a person get drunk one time and get thrown out of the church? Well, I don't think that it's talking about that. I think it means people that do it over and over again. But there's one thing that we've done that protects us, that protects the church against this. And we shouldn't really have to worry about drunkards because members of Berean, when you join the church, you agree to this. Our church covenant says that you will not drink at all. We don't allow social drinking because we believe the Bible is clear enough about this, clear enough about the evils of alcohol that we don't allow people to abuse it. We don't allow people to use it because they can get into abuse. So you can't get drunk if you don't drink, can you? So we protect the church from that. And so you need to remember this. I, I'm not accusing anybody in here, but uh, when, when you, if you drink, that's a violation of the church covenant. That's dishonest. It's dishonest for a church member to do that. It's morally wrong as well. Then it mentions extortioners. And we can't have a money that, it, uh, remember rather, that extorts money from people by violence. That stands to reason. Well, there's another list of these. We go to, you can turn over to the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians, and we have another list. And it starts out with verse 9 that says, The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I don't think we have a problem with that either. Do we think that the unrighteous should be members of the church, people that will not inherit the kingdom of God? Who are these people that are unrighteous and won't inherit that kingdom? Well, he tells us here, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And we could go on. There are many, many more of these moral offenses. But I want to show you one that we really do need to pay very close attention to. This one is over in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 4, verse 29, it says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good 
to the use of edifying that it may minister grace unto the hearers. You know what that's telling us? Believers should not use filthy language. Believers should not tell immoral jokes. Believers should not be involved in any type of lewd talk. Now you say, wait a minute, does that rise to the level of exclusion? Do we exclude people from the church that are guilty of using bad language like this, using filthy talk? Well, you may think not, but it actually can rise to an offense that we would exclude someone for under certain scenarios. Now, one of these is the next reason that I want to give you. The third one is disrespect of authority. When a person refuses to submit to the authority of the church, he's to be put out. Now, that one's not hard for us because this is exactly what Jesus said in in Matthew 18 in that text that we've been using all along. He says, And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Now, that says that when you defy church authority, then you are to be put out of the church. Now, how does that relate to what I just said? Well, the Bible gives the church the right to delegate authority. Who is the chief delegate for authority in the church? The pastor. The pastor, that's the chief delegate. So the church gives me the responsibility of dealing with certain issues. The church has the right to delegate it. Now, in Hebrews 13, verse 7, the Bible says, remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Same chapter, 17th verse, obey them that have the rule over you. There it's talking, this is all talking about pastors. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as that they must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Now, when you refuse the authority of the pastor, and by extension, that would be the authority of the church, the Bible says you should be put out. Now, think with me here for just a minute. If I approach you, if I have to approach you about a public sin, you've done something, especially a public sin, but if I have to approach you with sin, especially a public sin, and I tell you that what you're doing is harmful to the church, that what you're doing is an affront to the name of Christ, that is a reproach to the people of this church, and you stop doing it, what happens to you if you say, or if you go on and you say, I won't stop doing it. I'll just keep on doing it. After the pastor has told you, and he's the delegated authority from the church, after he's told you that it's wrong, what do you think this scripture's talking about? Well, it's talking about that very issue, that to refuse the authority of the pastor in these matters that's been delegated by the church is a reason that people can be put out. So if I come and I talk to you about a sin and I say you ought not to do that, it's harmful to the church, then stop doing it. Don't persist in it. Now, there's a fourth one, contention and strife. Romans 16, 17. Now, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. In 1 Corinthians 11, 16, but if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Now, that particular scripture, if you wanted to look that up, you'll find that the Apostle Paul is talking there about different issues in the church. And and he's not particularly saying that contentious people need to be put out, but he's saying here, we don't have anything to do with people that 
go against the customs of the church. I mean, when we've been taught to do something, we do that, and so we watch out for contentious people. So what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about people that are troublemakers. I mean, these are gossips. These are rabble-rousers. These are people that are always trying to keep something stirred up in the church. They cause bitterness and they cause strife. The Bible says you can't have that. You, you, you can't put up with people that upset the fellowship of the church. If we can't work together, we can't get anything done. We have to work together. If we fight each other, we don't have time to fight the devil. That's why you can't have people in the church that cause contentions. You'll also run into people that have some kind of a pet doctrine, and they want to get a following with their doctrine. So they form cliques in the church, and they start to undermine the authority of the pastor, and they start to upset the harmony of the church. Now, folks, if you hear someone vocalizing their opinion about me or about doctrines that are taught from the pulpit, you stop that person, and you say to them, Let's go to the pastor. It's not, let's go get a group together to discuss it and see if we can hash it out. No, you bring your Bible and you say, let's go to the pastor and let's talk about this and let's find out whether he's right or he's wrong. Now, there's one person in this church that wants to know that he's wrong more than anybody else. You know who it is? Me. You know why I want to know that? Because I have the greatest responsibility here. I'm the one who stands accountable before God. You think I don't want to know if I'm wrong? I'd say, you bet your bottom dollar that's what I want to know. I do want to know when I'm wrong. So if you figured it out, come tell me. Let's talk about it. Don't tell somebody else. Come and tell me. A fifth reason that we put people out of the church, disorderly walk. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves... From every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. Now, sometimes when we talk about disorderly walk, we are talking about moral offenses, but not all the time. And here would be a case in point. In this particular scripture, the Apostle Paul is speaking specifically about a person that, guess what? This is a person that will not work. This is a person that comes into a church to sponge off the church. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a person that will not work. He comes in to sponge off the church. Now, you know, there's some people who think that it's the church's responsibility to keep everybody up that will not work. Now, sometimes people lose their jobs. And folks, we need to have compassion on people that are going through tough financial uh, situations right now, just hard things that they're going through. And we help people like that. They're members of the church and they need help. That's a totally different story from somebody who absolutely will not work. Now, there's some people who think that the, the, the church is there to raise them. Well, the Bible tells us we're to help the poor, we're to help the genuinely indigent when they can't help themselves. But as far as the membership is concerned, there's only one type of person, did you know, that we are told specifically that we must help? You know who it is? It, widows. Uh, particular widows. Anybody know who this widow is? 60 years old and has nobody, no family to help support them. You know, that's the only case in the Bible where it says the church is specifically, we are told to help that kind of a person. Now, the others, we can have compassion, we can help. We don't actually have an obligation to do that. Now, in one sense, I think there is an obligation to people that are having a lot of trouble in the church and, they're, and they're, they don't have food to eat, they, they can't make it, then we, we ought to help those kinds of people. 
Well, um, I, I was having a conversation with Joe some time ago, several months ago, and he told me that when he started going to the church they're going to in Texas, that they became friends with a couple that seemed to be really struggling. These are people that didn't have jobs, and they were a couple that had some young children, and it just looked like they really needed help. So Joe, trying to be kind to them, uh, would invite them over, and he would feed them. But then he began to notice that they had all the latest electronic gadgets. I mean, they had everything that they needed and everything that they wanted to have. And you know what he found out? These people didn't want jobs. They weren't even looking for jobs. Their method was to collect a check from the government. They were just wards of welfare. And that's what they intended all along. That's all they ever wanted to be. They didn't want to work. They wanted to take a check from the government. That's the way that they live. Well, did you know that there are people that do come into the church and they look for somebody who's a soft mark and they try to take advantage of them? And poor old Joe, as good-hearted as he is, he had somebody do that in this church. There was a member of this church that took advantage of him and got a large sum of money from him because he had a big heart. Now, we found out later that that person had tapped other members of the church, older members of the church that felt sorry for her. You know what we did? We got rid of that person. Said, you can't stay here. You can't do that here because the Word of God tells that people are to work, and if you don't work, you don't eat. It's as plain as that. Well, that's really the kind of thing that Paul is talking about in Second Thessalonians 3. So walking disorderly then could include anything that brings the Christian faith into disrepute, that if it reproaches Christ and the church, we cannot tolerate that kind of person, so we put them out. Now, I want to add one more thing. We're, we're out of time, and I thought that this was quite interesting. And this is the other quote that I took from New Directory for Baptist Churches. This was written in 1894. And when you hear this, this, this is not something that Edward Hiscox, who compiled that um, instruction for Baptist Church. It's not something that he invented, but this was something that, that they practiced back in those days. I mean, this is what they thought about these kinds of things, and this is the way that Baptists used to think. Now, he dealt, he talked about covetousness, only talked about covetousness of a different sort. So, sixth on your list is a covetous spirit. So, let me read from Hiscox again. He says it so well. He says, a covetous spirit, he's describing it. He says, cases where members will not contribute of their means according to their evident ability for the support of the gospel or for other Christian work, throwing heavy burdens on others of which they refuse to bear their proportion. For while the church cannot compel liberality nor dictate what its members shall give, but leaves all offerings to be free will, yet liberality is required, and anyone who refuses to share an equality of responsibility while enjoying an equality of benefits exposes himself to reproof and discipline. For this ye know, that no covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. Ephesians 5, verse 5. If any man that is called a brother be covetous with such an one, know not to eat. 1 Corinthians 5, 11. Now, you preach that in most churches today, and they say, that is radical. I mean, who could believe that someone would teach something like this? Can you fault the biblical references that he gives? Hiscox is not wrong about this. The modern church is wrong about this, and modern Christians are wrong about this. 
And you think that God doesn't have his eye on a covetous, idolatrous spirit in the church when people will not support the Lord's work? You better believe that he has his eye on this. It's a very important thing. Now, what Christ wants is a pure church with holy people. Could you defend the holiness of someone who is covetous? Can you defend the holiness of someone who says, I don't want to have a part in supporting God's work, that I want to take all of my money and I want to spend it on me because I'm what's most important? You couldn't defend the holiness of a person like that, could you? Well, neither does God. Now, folks, what we want is a pure church. We want a holy church. We want a place where every member has the Lord Jesus Christ as the supreme ruler of his life. And that covers all areas of our life. There aren't optional. These aren't optional things. These are things that the Word of God commands. Now, there you have it. Corrective discipline, formative discipline, corrective discipline, excisive discipline. Maybe you won't hear me say so much about those terms uh, in the future. For a while, I may not talk about this, but keep it in your mind. Every time that you come to church, you are being formed into the image of Jesus Christ. Everything that's taught is to bring you to that place. I have no other goals. I have no other agendas. I have no other reason to be here than for the fellowship of God's people and to bring them into conformity with the image of Christ. When we're there, then we're the church that God wants us to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just praise your name for your goodness and your mercy to us. We thank you, Lord, that you've allowed us to have a place where we can come and worship you, a place where we can learn how to be like you. And we know, Lord, this is the the path of happiness for us. This is the place that we need to be. It's the way that we need to walk in order that we might get the fullness of our Christian life. Help us to learn these things, to keep these things in our mind. First and foremost, we want to exalt Jesus Christ. And the way that we do that is by living righteous and holy lives. Help us to do do it, Lord. And we give you the praise for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.